My name is Kelly Forden, and this is Let's Deconstruct a Story, a podcast for the story nerds. Aspiring writers need to understand the components of a good story before they can write one. Choices of point of view, plot, setting, and tone are crucial. In each episode, I'll be interviewing a writer about one of their own stories, which will be available for listeners to read for free on my website before they listen. That's www.kellyforden.com backslash blog. Or you can just Google Let's Deconstruct a Story and you'll find us on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is produced in collaboration with me. I do this by myself in order to learn more about short stories and connect with other writers. I'm happy to offer this as a service to other writers, but it does cost me a little bit of money. I work with sound engineer Elliot Bansell, who does an amazing job, and I have to pay him for his services. So I would deeply appreciate even the smallest donation if you are enjoying this podcast. You can make the donation on my website. Again, that's www.kellyforden.com. Thank you so much and enjoy the show. I'm here today with Chad B. Anderson, and we are going to be talking about his story, The Kelly Street Disappearances, which I have been a fan of for, I think, a decade. <laughs> did it come out a decade ago? It did. I had to look it up. Yeah. <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I had to look it up, yes. I know. I just thought, well, I do this podcast myself and um, for fun and to learn about the short story. And I thought, I have been obsessed with this story for so long. I have got to find you. <laughs> so That is such an honor. Yeah, that's really cool. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. I love it. And and so I did something new this time and I sent it out to past writers, which I think I mentioned to you in an email. And I didn't give them much time because this idea occurred to me on Saturday. And this is a long story. <laughs> it's 11,000 words. But I did hear back from a couple of people. So we'll be asking their questions as well. I wanted to start with the location. And if you could just give us a little background on Harrisonburg, Virginia. I'm a little familiar with it just being from D.C., but most readers may not be. Sure. Uh, Harrisonburg is in uh, the western part of Virginia in the Shenandoah Valley. Um, so kind of along that, I like to say, Virginia spine. And yeah, it's, you know, there's college towns, but it's mostly pretty rural. And, you know, when I wrote this, as you mentioned, you know, over a decade ago. So, you know, cities are always changing. Harrisonburg has changed a ton. Um, so I can't really speak to the Harrisonburg of now. I mean, because I, you know, I visit, but I'm, I'm not there constantly. Mm -hmm. But um, it is a predominantly white city. James Madison University is there and a couple of other universities and colleges. But Kelly Street, at least for me growing up, it was, you know, that and a couple of other streets around it was it did feel it was predominantly Black, predominantly Latino and working class. Um, and again, I don't know if, if things have changed. Gentrification is happening in right. every city. But, you know, that was sort of I remember my my father being, he's a plumber, and, you know, we would go all around the county and the city. You know, sometimes we'd have customers and clients on Kelly Street, and they were generally tended to be Black. And so this was sort of the the neighborhood and the, the part of Harrisonburg I was thinking about when I wrote uh, this story. 
Okay. And that leads me into a question that Desiree Cooper, author of Know the Mother and Nothing Special from Wayne State University Press in Detroit, had this, she had several questions for you, but the first one was, was the story called from the headlines? And then she says, explain the choice of the boy's disappearance as the inciting incident. (laughs) But you could say, you could do one. Let's do the story. (laughs) Was the story called from the headlines? No, it wasn't. Um, Not to my knowledge. Uh, I mean, sadly, disappearances, um, children's disappearances happen far too often. But like you said, it was it was written a decade ago. So really started with like a character like Miranda. I was living in Bloomington, Indiana at the time. I wrote the story kind of toward the end of my time in grad school at Indiana University. Mm -hmm. And I was on a bus and I remember sitting kind of near or across from a woman and she was white and her children were mixed race. Um, I want to presume mixed race with white and black, but I, I don't want to presume. Um, but I remember overhearing her saying, talking about her ex and saying, my children look nothing like him. Like just going, just talking to like someone, another passenger Wow. about this, uh, you know, about her ex and about like, she's move, ready to move and like start over with her, her children. And I think that, I don't know, because I don't know. She just left an impression on me. Yeah. Um, Well, that's kind of weird. So she was saying that in like, she was happy. They look nothing like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Wow. That's nice. And so, yeah. And so then, you know, time happened and and writing drafts happened. And obviously in the story, Miranda's children are, are white, but Mm -hmm. yeah, I was really just thinking about this, this mother who's moving to a new neighborhood, starting over and having this kind of, there was a sense of of carefreeness about the woman on the bus and mm-hmm. and the way she even despite there was some anger there toward her ex and but there was a sense of like determination and and grit and so that's kind of where the character came from and then mm-hmm. i don't know everything else kind of just spun out from there including okay. disappearances well that that leads me to ask about so i just have to just dive right into her because because in the story you are much more generous than a, a straight depiction of that woman, it seems like, because one of the features of Miranda is that she is not racist and and everybody on the street is surprised because even she never lets anything slip, like, you know, any of those microaggressions yeah. that happen. Yeah. I mean, I think part of that was just I knew mm-hmm. um, that there's, there's women like Miranda kind of in my family. You know, I, I grew up with with. Um, women like Miranda who come from rural or, or country uh, backgrounds, but for one reason or another, the communities in which they might find themselves in as adults or even as teenagers are black or just non-white and just always interested in, in folks who can be almost chameleon-like. And I won't say that she never slipped up or that she didn't have racist thoughts or inclinations and we can get into systemic racism and all of that. For the purpose of this character, just being someone who was being someone who was able to fit right in um, into cultures or to a racial group or what have you that's different from their own. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, we won't because I'm sure we will go down that path. But um, I wanted to not skip her question of the boys' disappearance as the inciting incident. So what do you remember at all when that occurred to you? I know. I know. <laughs> because it must have it must have been a leap of imagination because if you had never been a, involved in a disappearance, you had to imagine everything in that right, scenario, right. right? Yeah. 
I'm, I'm, I'm truly trying to remember. I think maybe I was trying to think about what would bring a community together or what would mm-hmm. kind of rock a community, a, a mystery of sorts. And, and I know that, the, you know, the missing kind of missing pretty young white woman had been done. And yes, <laughs> yes, a lot. done um, too much. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think I was thinking about that. I think and maybe also this might have been like featured into the reason why the the children um were were white as well as that I also the story I think and this might have been a question but um that was asked but the the story would have been different if they were black children and so I think I wanted really an inciting incident and I wanted these four very disparate characters to have some kind of link that would rock them and and kind of I wouldn't say change the trajectory of their lives necessarily um, in all cases, but but put them on a course that they might not have been on if this hadn't happened. And so, yeah, I I can't remember. I mean, maybe it was I saw a news story. I will say maybe broadly, generally, I am interested in like disappearing disappearances and missing people stories, especially the ones that are unsolved. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as dark and you know, tragic as it is, I think that there's something fascinating about the idea of, particularly when it comes to adults who go missing, the sense, and there's no evidence of foul play, it's this mystery and this, and what it must feel like and be like for the people that are left behind, mm-hmm. you know, they leave on their own with something done to them, you know, and I think that there's so much kind of rich kind of psychological and social turmoil and elements to explore. So yeah. Yeah, and that and it's come up a couple of other times in and stories that I've been working on and a novel idea that I have about you know people who who vanish, um, yeah, or run away. Um, well, there is so. no yeah, there's no resolution. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Well, let's go to. Um, I want to do a couple of craft things, and then we'll get into some of the deeper questions. <laughs> but sure. the craft, I was really astonished, honestly, by how seamlessly you moved from one person's mind to the next. And it felt like, I mean, this is, uh, it felt like a little like Anna Karenina when, you know, you have that overview in the beginning. I know. Thank you. That's- <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> no, but I mean, like you have the overview of the street, you know, like all happy family. No, but you have the street and then, you know, and then we swooped down and I was just thinking, so I actually mapped it out paragraph by paragraph. And it seems like, so it's sort of an omniscient narrator, correct me if I'm wrong, until about eight paragraphs in when we get Crawley's POV first, and then we get the POV of everyone on the street, then we get Bree's POV, then we're back to Crawley, back to Bree. I want to just run through them quickly, and then I'll ask you the question. Miranda, Bree, Crawley, the omniscient POV, <laughs> and then Miranda, Byron, Bree, omniscient I think we end on omniscient again. So what's amazing about this is you said you wrote this when you were in graduate school. You know, <laughs> this is one of those things that they're like, nobody can do this. Stick with, you know, I mean, they would probably, I don't know, what did they say when you were, <laughs> did you turn it in for class or? I, I did. And, you know, I think, you know, I think point of view was certainly something that they commented on. And I think it took lots of revision um, to get to the point that it's at, of course, and and smoothing that out and getting a handle on that that sort of omniscient narrator that being able sort of the balance between being with and in a character 
without and, and holding that balance without I don't know losing control and going too deep into them that you lose sight of someone else. Mm-hmm. And I think that I'm remembering correctly, you know, when I first wrote the story, Bree's character was she kind of was. She wasn't supposed to be as prominent, I think, as she is. And a lot of folks in the story said, like, the omniscient narrator seems attracted to Brie. And that you Oh, interesting. What is her, what's driving her, what's, you know, what is her role in the story? And so that's sort of where I kind of picked, because before it was just more, she was more of like a, you know, a character for for Byron to sort of bounce off of and talk mm-hmm. to. But she kind of then had her own agency. And by the time this this version came about. I hear people say things like, you know, like, so I mentioned that um, Tolstoy just to because someone mentioned to me that it's sort of like a camera zooming in, you know, you fly out over the location and then you zoom in closer and closer. So in the beginning of the story, you do have that paragraph where you mention all of them. And, you know, before we get into their points of view, you know, you you tell us a little bit about each one. But I was curious about the fact that Crawley is the first POV we get. And I'm wondering about your decision to have him come first. Yeah, I think Crawley was an interesting character to write simply because I honestly pictured him as like the least like myself. And so I think sometimes when I'm writing and I'm trying to explore a new character, I try to tackle the one that I think is going to be the hardest for me. Oh, um, good idea. And, and so it, that probably just was in the roughness of of drafting. And then kind of as the story unfolded, it, it made sense to sort of turn to him first because he is he does become this kind of silent observer, this eye. And I would, you know, I think that the narrator, you know, he, he's not omniscient, but because he has this role of sitting on the porch um, when he's not at work and sort of watching the the neighborhood unfold around him and to be sort of apart from something while being in it mm-hmm. uh, was also something idea that I do, I did start to relate to Crawley, you know, just, you know, from, you know, my own, you know, background and, and being a kid and being a nerdy kid and, and like, <laughs> right. you know, right? watching being, people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, exactly, yeah. exactly. Like being a part of a community, but really feeling a part of like a part of it as well. Yeah. Apart from it. Sorry. And observing. And so, I think maybe it felt natural to move from this omniscient narrator into a slightly, he's not omniscient again, but he's, he's still observing going into someone's, someone's point of view, who's might be a little bit more limited and a little bit more focused, like Miranda or Byron, who are focused either on each other or their children. Right. Um, Yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah. Visually we go from like the panoramic camera to the camera of like Crawley's eye watching the house, which I hadn't thought of until right this second, but that's kind of cool. And then he mentions um, that he took the beating from Byron because he was in love with Miranda. Right. So, I mean, he puts up with everything because of that. And I think you did a really great job. Uh, They all have something they want in the story. Like Brie wants to go to Ocean City, which I actually lived in Ocean City for one summer and worked at the Safari Motel. So I was thinking the whole time, I'm like, oh boy, you're going to be disappointed when you get there. (laughs) It sounds great, but no. No shade against Ocean City, but that was, I wanted, I mean, they're... I wanted these people to sort of, they have <laughs> dreams, but I wanted them to be very, they're not necessarily small, but they're not 
huge dreams. Like she's not dreaming to go to Hollywood or the big new big apple. Right. Or, you know, Paris or whatever. whatever. Right. right. Yeah. Right. She just wants to like, she wants a change of scenery and she wants to be close. Right. To and, you know, Ocean City just sounds kind of pretty to say. And um, it made it it made it really poignant because yeah. it was such an accessible dream. It was just a car ride. You know, it was like, right. oh, but it, it really I could feel how hard it is to get in the car and leave a family member behind who is not, you know, functioning well yet. And I another thing that I had to read it several times to realize how young all these characters are. Crawley's only 34, but you know, I was picturing an ancient guy. <laughs> so yeah, it's funny. I mean his um, life is not even a quarter over, you know, like or a third over. So that is a that is a critique that I remember very clearly from my workshop um of the story, an early mm-hmm. version of the story. Uh, my friend and writer of Del Shakur. Um, he's in Chicago now, but he kept pointing out, he's like, these characters, they seem so old <laughs> they they're like in their late twenties to early thirties or mid thirties. And, you know, one, I will, I will pull back the curtain and say like, I was, I was, you know, 25 or something like, so I was, <gasps> there's part of me that hadn't reached Right. Characters now so they seemed it. they seemed really old to you, but older. But yeah, then, I think even now I still though I still stand by my decision because I think that there is a sense of like when you live in certain environments, when you live, whether it's you grew up poor or whether you live in a you just have a difficult life, a hard yeah. life you have to grow yeah. up fast. You have to be a caretaker quickly. You know, you you do age faster than maybe others who might have it a little bit easier might have more privilege or more opportunities yeah um and you know i I, there are definitely people growing up in in the communities where i live that i thought were much older than they actually were and and you know i talked to my parents about it and they're like oh well they you know she's just had a hard life or like right they lived hard so you know the the people in the story they work hard they've lived like tough lives they have a lot of responsibility and uh, yeah, their parents died. I mean, Bree right. and Byron's parents died when they were 19 and 20. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you, that. okay, wait, hold up one sec. <laughs> you wrote this when you were 25. Um, I'm just trying to, it was around. Yeah. I graduated. Uh, if it was, was, was math is not my strong. Okay. Story. But anyway, anywhere near 25, <laughs> it's pretty, yeah. I'm really impressed. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay. So let me move on to, so we've got, so the POVs, obviously you work through that. And then it's interesting because I kept trying to solve the mystery and I have this little sidebar, like, am, I'm wondering here if I'm being lulled as a reader by this interiority, <laughs> like, am I missing clues? And so I did notice that, okay, there weren't any, okay. Yeah. I mean, I didn't think any of them had done anything. No, I mean, my my mom, when she read the story, she was like, I still think Crawley did it. Um, (laughs) But 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 no, no one um, that like appears physically in the story did anything. And I do, as a writer, have kind of have a sense of what happened to the boys. And I thought writing it. But for me, the story wasn't about as as sad as that is and as tragic as that is. Truly, um, for me, it wasn't about the boys. What I wanted for this story was what happens how do people respond you know and how do they move around that to sort of self-actualize and 
as I was writing this, I didn't necessarily think that, like, I wasn't being like, how do these people sexual, like, self-actualize themselves? But yeah. <laughs> it was, it was more of a, what keeps breathe air and what lets her go. What mm-hmm. is going to, like, release Crawley of the sense of guilt and, like, have a little bit of gumption and, like, ownership over his own life? You know, what is going to force Byron to grow up a little bit? And, you know, and I think Miranda gets the short end of the stick. I don't know. I think I it's in the story that I don't yeah. know what lessons there are for her. And I don't want there to be lessons. Like sometimes it's just terrible. It's horrible. Yeah. I mean, she it just is. stays on the street and that's yeah. it. Yeah. So, okay. So you said in your mind as the writer, you kind of have an idea of what happened. And I, I did note two small clues that I thought, oh, maybe one time the movers um, gave them a yo-yo. And then the other thing I thought was uh, when Miranda goes to work, she lets them wander around the mall and everybody knows them in the mall. So then I thought, okay, well, you know, is someone tailing them? I hadn't thought of that. I haven't. Okay. I will say that just in case I'm only doing this not to be coy, but only in case I do think about writing. Yes, I agree. It is not as tragic as as it could be. So I will say that it is. Oh, I don't know if it'd be a novel, but I, I. what I do like and what I've been working on a current project that I'm working on is sort of interconnected short stories or a novel and stories. Mm-hmm. And I really like that format because I think writing a novel sometimes feel re- feels really overwhelming and intimidating. And so for me, I was like the project I'm working on now, it's like, okay, I'll just focus on one character at a time and they'll each get their own short story and they'll weave in and out of each other's lives. But um, oh, that would be great. Like, and then by the end, I'll have a novel, but it won't feel like it. And so I have a couple of ideas for other other projects like that, that does kind of pick up on some of the side characters or follows some of these characters either earlier or later in their lives. So I have, I do have, I think I've even like written a page of like something around the boys. Okay. Okay. So I won't <laughs> ask. We'll just wait for the finished (laughs) novel and stories. Okay. All right. So the other thing that really fascinated me was the timeline. So the boys disappear, then they disappear in the afternoon. It's first reported around six. They first suspect Crawley, then Frederick Shanks. Uh, Miranda then is the suspect. And then two days after the disappearance, the neighborhood begins to resume its usual routine. I love the part about Reginald Yates yelling to his son to like, it was so moving when he finally started, you know, mowing the lawn again. I thought that was so, I mean, just to have that in the background as a time marker, 10 days after Bree's dog, Antonio goes missing two days after that. So we're 12 days after. So I had to like do all this math. 12 days after the disappearance, Bree leaves for Ocean City. And then days later, Crawley leaves. So then it's near the end of September when Miranda's thinking about going back to work. Right. And um, we don't see her do that. But when when she sees him mowing the grass, then she's she has to go back to bed for four days. And that just broke my heart. So when you were I guess, how did you come up with, was this timeline, the original timeline or because it's very condensed? Yeah, I think honestly, it was a little bit longer and I, I'm trying to remember specifics, but again, it was a while ago. I think I remember in workshop, there was something, it was a longer timeline in the work and look, there was an issue with that in terms of like how patient would people be, mm-hmm. how long do searches last? Mm-hmm. Uh, just a lot of logistics around that that came up for readers. And so 
you know, and, and I'm sure there's still like, I'm, I'm no, you know, I'm not a police officer or detective or right. forensic expert. Like, I don't know how long necessarily things may or may not last, but um, so it felt like, okay, let's, let's try to contain it to a month and just mm-hmm. sort of see, which isn't a long amount of time, but it is, it can contain a lot of sort of ups and downs and decisions right. that need to be made in this case. And so that's sort of where, where I, I landed. Mm-hmm. Okay. So to get into the like sort of societal issues around this, and I think that is one of the things that really stuck out to me because it just makes you think about the world that you expect versus the world that you created. And without saying anything, you realize you come away with the feeling, or at least I did, how unfair the world is because how much better it would be if it would happen like it happens in the story. In that the black and brown people in the story are worried, like, oh my God, these four white, you know, like these two white kids have disappeared. And then the police are totally respectful. It's interesting because one, I wrote this story before, not necessarily before, you know, any kind of police brutality or anything like that. That's obviously not true. Um, That goes back many, 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 many decades. But for sort of the 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 high kind of you know the George Floyd, Michael right. Brown, Trayvon Martin, Sandra Bland before the sort of high profile cases of institutional racism and and police brutality and mistrust between communities of color and the police um, again which have all existed but me being from kind of this mm-hmm. rural college town and then you know going through living in the college towns of you know. University of Virginia, where I went to undergrad, and then I went to grad school in Indiana and Bloomington. So, you know, I think my experiences were different, and I was sheltered and privileged in certain ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but it was on the top of my top of mind that I, you know, obviously knew enough being black in in America to know that this could have gone differently. And mm-hmm. I and I also knew that feeling that you know often in black communities um, and probably many communities of color when there is sadly, a mass shooting or any kind of, you know, crime or wrongdoing or tragedy, we sort of brace ourselves, like when they find the perpetrator, who's it going to be? Because, right, you know, there's this fear that someone of a certain race, gender, et cetera, if they do something bad or wrong or violent, it's going to reflect bad on the, the rest of the population, which is absurd, of course. Right. But it, right. Is, it is. And so I think I wanted to sort of toy with that. And I think I didn't want there to be i think i didn't want to i was afraid of of like like potentially perpetrating stereotypes or or going into that territory i think in an early version like byron was also a high like suspect for a minute Mm -hmm. which i think honestly if i was writing this now there there would be some changes i think i might actually go there and be a little tougher and um explore the racial component more deeply but yeah but i think in in that in that place in that time where i was i was really you know wanted to kind of just see like because i didn't want to write the story of black pain of you know two black children for instance going missing and i didn't want to write the the idea that they would get less media attention less frenzy less interest than than white children missing and i also think i didn't want you know, and, may, and I don't remember this exactly, but I, I think I also, you know, to to make Miranda, obviously Miranda 
white. I mentioned the sort of the woman who inspired the character yeah. um, on the bus. Like, and while that woman's children were of color, I think maybe I d- I was afraid to be like, I don't want to make these children of color either because I don't want to portray like a quote unquote, like missing black dad. Like, I don't want that stereotype involved. And then, and like, what does it mean to have like Byron come in as a surrogate father? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just, you know, he's certainly a flawed character, but like to be a, a generally a, a good man. And so I, I think that there was, there was a part of me that was like really trying to avoid both stereotypes and certain kinds of showcasing of black pain or, or negative black experiences that happen in our country. And that, people can see time and time again in movies and in books. And so, yeah, I think that that's what was going on in my mind back then. Yeah. And I think, um, so as a white reader reading it, I was really struck by how people were stealing themselves at every turn. Um, Is she going to say something racist? Are they going to, are the police going to come down on us? You know, like, are they going to target us? And I guess there were two things that happened when I was reading it. Like uh, one was, wouldn't this be great if, if this is how it went <laughs> in yeah. a, in a fair and equitable way. But then the other thing I was thinking of was that that's not a thought that white people have like, Oh, I'm glad we weren't targeted. So reading it, it really strikes you hard. I don't know. It was very, very moving. Okay. So Renee Sims, was just loving the story. And she came in with that question about Toni Morrison's story and recitative. I think that's how you say it, because I listened to it on Audible today. And then I read Zadie Smith's commentary on it. And I thought, this is so fascinating because she's playing with race and class. Had you read it or? So I have to admit, I I love Toni Morrison. Um, I've read several of her novels i have not read that story oh um, so it's on my yeah i um i saw you sent that question and i was like oh i wish i had time to like find that and, and read it and i i will oh my god when you read it it'll be really fascinating because it did open things up for me a little bit in that um i was thinking there's a lot about class here as well and stereotype of like the the poor white woman the stereotype would be more like you know the woman on the bus who is racist. And in the Toni Morrison story, which I just read once, you can't tell these two girls, they're um, both eight years old, they become friends. And throughout the entire story, you cannot tell which one is white and which one is black. This is, I think, what got me about your story too. So Zadie Smith said, some take the narrowest possible view of this category of my people. They mean only their immediate family. For others, the cry widens out to encompass a city, a nation, a faith group, or perceived racial category, a diaspora. But whatever your personal allegiances, when you deliberately turn from any human suffering, you make what should be a porous border between your people and the rest of humanity into something rigid and deadly. Morrison wants us ashamed of how we treat the powerless, even if we to feel powerless. And then there's another great line here. It has to do with the fact that they're all poor on the street. They're all struggling on the street. And so that's a different type of community coming together there as neighbors. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's really apt and definitely relevant to to the Scully Street different disappearances. Because I think, you know, one thing that I think about, the class comes up particularly around work for 
you know, many of these these characters. Um, I'm thinking about Crawley, you know, he's you know, working road construction and you know, he sees these big SUVs fly past him, like something that he could never afford. And we think about Brie, she imagines her own kind of future, her own destiny through seeing people and interacting with people who have more wealth than she has. So there's women, white women at work that um, take all these classes like yoga and, and and cooking classes that she just wanted that no one else on the block does. And they're always like, Why, where are you going? Why are you always, like, you have all these like extracurricular activities. And then there was, you know, she sees people wealthier, middle-class, upper middle-class black folks coming um, to vacation in the Shenandoah Valley um, from Maryland. And so that becomes this kind of like, oh, there's like a, it's almost like this black Mecca up there. And so, you know, what that means that like their, you know, sense of self-actualization or escape involves or is somehow sparked by people of different uh, socioeconomic classes than they are. That makes sense to me. I was looking at a couple of Des Cooper's questions and she was saying the white children versus uh, disappearing versus black children, which we covered, I think. Um, But then she had a question. Everyone has a moral failing. It's as if the whole town is implicated in the disappearance. And then she says, but I still want to know who did it. (laughs) (laughs) But it is true. Like if you think about the moral failing, I mean, but they were you made them so real that I totally understood. Of course, they want to go out bowling. And I have four kids. So I remember being like, could I just run to the store and like whatever, you know, and most of the time nothing would happen. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it happens. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, no. I was going to say, and Crawley, I completely understood why he was like, I'm going to 7-Eleven. Yeah. And I think that that was, yeah, I remember that, that confession and trying to figure out what is this feeling of, guilt or shame and like does he have something to confess and that being almost a a kind of turning point for the story and it was something as small and as i I don't even want to say sad but like just something and just like i just wanted to go get a slushy and i was just so angry it was like this past like it was like the most he could like revolt or yes or, or hurt them and it was 10 minutes Right. And like, who knows if that's truly what, ha- you know what I mean? In terms of like, that was really the, 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 the window of time. Like, but I think there's, there's these ways that these people have, don't have power. As you mentioned earlier, like things mm-hmm. that aren't fair for them and they are finding these small ways, you know, moving to good old ocean city. Right. Um, right. You know, uh Crawley goes gets his Slurpee and you know Miranda and Byron just want to bowl and Byron just wants to like make be manager at Subway like these right. are these are kind of very attainable dreams and I think they're beautiful dreams for these these characters um, but it also just shows just like how kind of fragile and how small that they're they're and how it can change it could yeah. change on you know at any moment the, the right. smallest thing can happen right. what about the fact that um frederick shanks <laughs> so he, he's like he's trading sandwiches <laughs> for crack <laughs> <laughs> and oh he... i honestly i was trying to remember where that i just rem- i remember <laughs> honestly i feel like i heard that somewhere <laughs> I 
someone saying that and i thought it was the most like like the, the most hilarious thing that like, right and so i just put it in but I'm, i try i'm really trying to remember the source but i feel like it was like a i don't think i don't know if it was like a newspaper article or like maybe i heard like an uncle like like talking about it because i do have an uncle who had like he told like some of the best stories on the field. <laughs> and so but then he just but then the manager doesn't even charge him he just ends up in beckley west virginia where i've been as well <laughs> and it is yeah and that's again different. for me that that's like because it's white privilege like if it was if it was would that happen and then the other thing that you said about when the black folks on the street are like really glad that the police don't target them i was thinking about all the white, you know, mass shooters that we've had. It's, uh, but that is another moment in the story where it's so subtle. And I think that's what you did so masterfully. And I think it's that omniscient voice, that distance, that like journalistic quality that it's got to strike people. Like, this is not how things go. And oh, whoops, this is not a fair world. This is not equitable. And I think that's one of the things that, (laughs) not to go on and on, but mm-hmm. I think that's why fiction is so important. Like stories like this are so important. It is. And, you know, as you've been talking, like, you know, as as writers, I'm sure you've experienced this too, when you go back and, and read something that you wrote a long time ago, there are certainly like small things and big things that I would change. But I think, you know, one thing is that I think I might, I think there's, you mentioned it earlier, like this, like the war, like, wouldn't it be nice if, if you know, because the police interactions were, were more like this more often and yes. our, our real world and i think maybe if i had written this today that the or if i were to revise this story i think the police would like be a little bit could there be a little bit more aggression and distrust and and so i think there's something about i wouldn't say fairy tale like because i think there's a lot of tragedy here and, and real world consequences for, for the story but i do think that there's that that component of it I'm kind of glad it was written before all of that happened. Now we don't, we know more, right? But so that's what gives your story that fairy tale quality. And I think that's maybe what will make it a long lasting piece of literature. So thank you. That's a very, <laughs> I very think so. Well it, well, it makes it seem like you, <laughs> you rose above it and looked down on it in a Toni Morrison type way yeah. and, and kind of showed us a vision of the world that would be a better vision of the world. Yeah. So I appreciate that. I think that that's, um... I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying it all like you glossed over the reality I think shines through as well. And I think, you know, the story is it was was special to me because it was I wouldn't say it was like one of the first stories I wrote with like omniscient point of view and that's certainly not the case but you know I've always I've always since I was in high school um and my teacher you know 10th 10th grade teacher um you know suggested I read Faulkner and I was like what and I barely understood certain things right just the way that that omniscient tone and being able to move across and and then you know folks also like Edward P. Jones who wrote The Known World that has always been like one of my kind of inspiring ways to write and I think I I listened to an episode that you did with George Saunders and he said that he had like he has basically like 12 stories that he's loved um and that He's obviously, you know, read much more than that, but like those are the ones that kind of keep influencing him. Yeah. And I don't know if I necessarily have like 12 stories per se, maybe if I think about it, but 
there's these these authors and these these tricks and Tony Morrison's one of them, R.P. Jones. Yeah, do any others come to mind? <laughs> yeah, uh, this sounds pretentious, but Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Oh, yes. Um, Russell Banks. There's quite a few authors who who have this journalistic quality or can move back and forth between omniscience and and really like personal kind of explorations of, of psyches and, and motives. And so that for me, the story was like, really working with that and, and that point of view. And so I appreciated, you know, you you kind of mentioning that point of view and talking um, about that and, and how it does have a novelesque quality. I mm-hmm. tend to write long. I'm, I'm long-winded verbally, but also <laughs> on the page. Uh, well, I so- was going to ask you about um, getting it published because at 11,000 words, and I should have done the shout out to Salamander, who I think is going to offer the story uh, for free for a month when the podcast comes out. But um, so they they took it, but it's hard to place a story that's long. It is. Um, and I think this is this is definitely by far the longest story I've ever placed. Uh, most of my other stories, you know, are eight pages, 10 pages, 11 pages. And so and those are and for me, those are the ones that tend to be the like the surprising ones when mm-hmm. I write that short. I'm like, oh, I'm done. I'm, I don't have like Right. You know, 25 more pages to go or something and but yeah I'm, I'm trying to remember the process of this and i'm really thankful for salamander for for publishing it and i don't know if it was i do remember cutting i do remember being like it's still too long like it's still too long um oh wow and so I, I and i wish i could remember i may have to maybe still have the files to see like what the uncut version is yeah um, well i did um one last craft thing because We've mentioned it so many times, and and I didn't ask you if you have a trick for how to go into multiple characters. Have you found, like, I, I looked through the story many times, and it seemed like we just sort of turned to the character, but is there a way you went about it specifically? Um, I'm trying to think both about this and multiple points of view, because um, I do like to do that. Yeah, I mean, like, you would just transition with, over the next few days, Crawley watched TV on his front porch... I think for me, the sort of the trick is really to love your characters a little bit and like embody them and know them. I think, and sometimes they surprise you. Like I mentioned that Brie ended up having more of a role than I kind of expected her to originally. Um, and, and you know, she kind of turns into almost the the linchpin of the, of the story. But yeah, I, I think really allowing the, being fond of the characters you know, these they go through tough stuff, but mm-hmm. but like wanting the best for them, even when they don't get it and like denying them and you as the author deny it of them. So having that compassion, I think. And then I think a helpful exercise when you are going to have multiple points of view is to think about like, you know, how do different people see the other character, right? Like, like Byron, Byron and Miranda and and Crawley all see three from different components right like yeah like you know for crawley she's like the sexy neighbor yeah Miranda, she's like a a nice friend like you know and you know for byron he's like the little like her his big little sister who does everything and i think there's also i think maybe one of the questions addressed it and you mentioned it but the the characters all have different kind of points of view about the, the way they feel about the children, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Right. About them. And so I think sort of trying to look at like, how would the characters notice this? How would they notice each other? 
you know, I think that that's really a good a good tool too to help embody the characters, even if you're not necessarily using first person or close third person. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like you you had the vehicle of the houses too. Like it was someone would go over to the house to to talk to someone, and then once we were inside the house, it would switch to that character's point of view, which was kind of cool. And I don't know if that happened every time. I didn't chart that, but that is a cool idea, I think, for people to use. And then really briefly, because we're, uh, we're, we are out of time. <laughs> Sorry yeah. about that. Uh, okay. But the, just how they view the kids, that was fascinating to me because as a parent, I was like, oh, they're, they're really good. They're really quiet. And in my experience, kids who are really good and really quiet are a little afraid, <laughs> sadly. Yeah. So that made me for a moment or two think, what is, what happened? You know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's also, you know, a mystery. I think that we don't really know a lot about Miranda before she moved to, to the Kelly street. Um, mm-hmm. We don't know a lot about the father, but I think that was another thing that I wanted to kind of, it's not that it doesn't matter, but like these, all, all these people have had tragedies or mm-hmm. have had reasons for sort of being where they are. And I'm not even talking about geographically, but just sort of just temporally where they, where they um, exist in time in this moment um, the work that they have, the community that they have, the right. attitudes they have, um, and, and what that does to people, um, and, and the way they see each other or, um, the way they, again, try to find joy or self-actualization or, you know, um, growth of any sort. Right. Was there anything that I didn't ask you that you wanted to talk about pertaining um, to this story? No, I think it was a really wide-ranging conversation. I really thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you're welcome. It was I, it was a thrill for me. And um, what are you? You said you're working on the novel and stories. Anything yeah. else? Okay. Um, yeah, working on the novel and stories. And I've also just recently edited a collection um, called "What's Mine of Wilderness." Okay. Um, I can send the link if you'd like. That would be great. But um, it it collects poetry, fiction, and nonfiction, and art related to climate change and nature and our humanity's relationship with that, particularly those who are marginalized and often underrepresented in mm-hmm. kind of nature writing. And I have a I've written the introductory essay to that anthology, so that's out by Borough Press. Um, nice, Florida. And so, yeah, I encourage you. And everyone who listens to to read it, if they have a chance. Yes, I'll put the uh, link on the blog. And thank you again. Thank you. Have a great one, Kelly. Thank you much. <laughs>